So, this week we are continuing our series on the Grinch and how his heart grew three sizes. Now, last week, Lauren kind of kicked things off by talking about why the Grinch, or why the Grinch thought Christmas was about, and that misperception of he didn't quite like what the Who's were doing, and so went down this route of kind of anger. And Lauren talked, talked a lot about, well, what is Christmas? And we talked about John 3.16 quite a bit, and about how that really encapsulates this amazing gifts of Christmas. And so today, we're going to continue the story and see what the Grinch does with this anger that's built up. He gets an idea, right? Most of us kind of know this line, right? The Grinch gets an awful idea, a wonderfully awful idea. And what is that idea? Well, to take Christmas into his own hands, like very literally. His idea is to dress up as Santa, recruit his dog unwillingly to be his reindeer, and go in and physically take Christmas away. He's going to go in, break into all the houses, he's just going to straight up rob the Who's, go into their homes, take not only all their decorations, take everything Christmas-related out of the house, but also their food. He's going to take their food. The roast beast, the cakes, the eggs, who hash, absolutely everything, he's going to leave them with no food. He's going to take it all, throw it up the chimney, and leave. Now, what I think is interesting, if we pause for a moment here, the Grinch, like we would argue most good kind of literary villains, don't think they're doing anything wrong. The Grinch thinks he's doing something good. Because, jump back to last week, what was the Grinch upset about? The Grinch was upset that he saw the Who's as seeing Christmas as nothing but gifts, nothing but getting things, nothing but the noise, the hoopla around the event. I mean, kind of in short, the Grinch thinks the Who's have commercialized Christmas too much. A lot of people might agree with that idea, right? That he's seeing the Who's is missing the point of Christmas. But how does the Grinch respond to this notion, this idea he has of his perceived idea of what the Who's are doing? Well, he takes everything into his own hands, in this case, very literally. The Grinch has to be in control of everything. The Grinch sees something that he perceives as wrong or as off, and is like, nope, I'm going to be the one to come in and single-handedly fix it by myself. The Grinch has to hold everything. The Grinch always has to be in control. And I think and, and there's a really cool example of this. As he's going through, you know, one of the houses, he's putting the tree up the chimney, one of the baubles falls off, goes over, wakes up Cindy Lou Who, who is coming out, now she's up, she's going to get some water, because of course if you wake up in the middle of the night, you've got to get something to drink, that's the rule. She goes out, sees the Grinch, and for a fraction of a second, the Grinch is not in control. This was not the plan, this was not how this was supposed to happen. But he instantly re recovers. He lies to her, tells her he's going to take it back, fix it, sends her off to bed with her cup, he's back in control. It was just for that tiniest moment the Grinch is out of control, and he panicked. But then recovers instantly. Okay, no. I am still the puppet master of this situation. 
I still have everything under control. And I think it is very natural for us to want to be in control. I think you could argue this goes all the way back to Genesis, right? What, why do Adam and Eve eat the fruit? They want knowledge to control their own destiny. They want to control their own lives. They don't trust God enough, and so they want to ascend to God too. They want the control God has. So this is a, something that goes back to the beginning of us, the desire for control. Now, I teased this story last week. So, last week I was delivering all of our Thanksgiving foods, right, to the varying families that, that we sponsored. And one of them, so the lineup of things for this particular lineup is important, the schedule. So I was going to drop off some food to a family, go to the Town & Country Rehab Center, do a small Bible study there, and then continue on. So, in the lead-up to this, probably spent way too much time, but thinking about what clothes did I want to wear. Because I didn't want to dress too, you know, schlubby, because I'm, I'm, I'm going to families and such, you know. But I didn't want to, like, dress up too much, because that can be off-putting. So I spent way too long, like, just said, all right, no, that, that one's a little too far this way, that one's a little too far this way. Oh, do, do I wear a Santa hat or not? Like, could that, you know, I, way too much time. But ultimately, I picked out what I was wearing. I was happy with it. It's good. Get the food. Dropping it off to family. Drop one, kind of, you know, Costco flat off. Go back into the car. Get the other one. While I was doing that, there's a kid in the family who's apparently the strongest child in the world, because, you know, maybe like three or four, like, toddling around, managed to open a jar of gravy. And I have another flat, so I can't see. I'm coming in, kids flinging gravy around. I get gravy all over my pants. <laughs> I don't have time to get home to change before I have to go to town and country for, again, what I think is a small little Bible study. So I have to fly to Target, like this is, was right there, and just buy pants, just anything so I do not show up covered in gravy. And I'm in there buying pants, and I realize if I just buy pants and then go into the changing room, you know, buy into the changing room and change, they're going to think I pooped myself, so I have to get a bunch of other stuff, too, just so it doesn't look like I pooped my pants. So I come out with this big, like, cart of stuff that I really don't need, but just to hide the fact that I'm buying pants to change into immediately. So I do all that. These pants are hideous. Like, absolutely not. They're, they're bad. Because they're the only ones that I found that fit that could go. I show up to town and country. There was a miscommunication about timing of things. It was their big residence family Thanksgiving event. There's tables there. People are in like suits. The staff is wearing like dress, full dress clothes. I'm showing up in gravy Costco or, you know, Target pants and like, uh, yeah. That's just a snapshot of how that day went. It, yeah, okay. It continues on from there. So how well did my perfectly picked out outfit work for that day? Not at all. It completely got thrown out the window. How well did any of my plans that day that I spent so long, like, okay, this is exactly what I'm doing, this work? No. They all got thrown off by a can of gravy and a missed email. It sent my day completely in a different direction. But how often is that the case? How often is that true? That we have something, we're in control. I know it's that I've planned it all out. This is exactly how it's going to go. And it doesn't. 
How often do we think we're maybe smarter than God or know better than God when we kind of hear a plan or understand what God wants us to do? We're like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I have more control over here. This way is better. No, no, God. That, that can't be right. I just don't like that plan or can't trust it. I'm, I'm going to take over here. I know better. I'm running this now. How much pressure does that put on our lives? How much undue stress do we put on ourselves by thinking, I have to control absolutely every small detail? If I don't micromanage everything in my life, it's going to fall apart. How much added stress does that put on us? Why would we not trust the creator of heaven and earth for the small details in our lives? Because we think we know better? Because we, like Adam and Eve, we want to ascend to that, we want to control our own fate, our own destiny. We want to be at that level with God, right, where we can run things. That's what we want. But how often does that work out? And what I think is also interesting is at the times when we are most stressed out, when we are grasped with despair, when we want to, you know, hide under our favorite blanket with our favorite smell or whatever and just sit and cry. It's in those moments that we tend to hold on to that control even tighter. When it's in those moments that we should give up control even more. It's in these exact moments where we should be letting God take the lead, letting God show us what to do and doing it, but we hold on even tighter. What would it look like to surrender control to God, especially in these moments, in these scary moments, these moments of upheaval, these moments when things are completely falling apart? What would that look like to give control to God? Well, this would be a pretty terrible message if I didn't have an example of that, and so luckily we have a great example of that from the Christmas story. So this is Luke 1, starting in verse 46. This is Mary's song, sometimes called the Magnificat. So Mary has just found out she's pregnant with Jesus. In the Luke passage, it's unclear whether she tells Joseph yet or not, because it's she finds out, she immediately goes to her cousin Elizabeth. We don't know what happened in the middle there, but so she finds out, she flees, she goes to her cousin Elizabeth's house, and this is her response to what has happened, talking to her cousin Elizabeth. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Imagine being in this situation 
you are Mary here. This is not a great situation for you. There's a very high likelihood you are going to be abandoned by your family. And again, in the Luke version, we don't know if she's told Joseph yet. So does she might not know if she's being abandoned by her, by her partner, by her fiancé. There are probably legal ramifications coming because the like, dowry process was a very logistical, legal setup. There could be massive legal ramifications for her. She will definitely be a social outcast. And as we've seen through Matthew, that happened and continued forward. There's a tiny possibility that she could be killed. Because there's one of these laws that is on the books, but we never have an example of, but technically by the letter of the law, she could be killed. Imagine being in that situation, and your first reaction is to say, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant, and behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That is probably not what I'd be saying. There would be a lot of four-letter words going to God in this situation if it was me. A lot of asking why, a lot of ranting, a lot of anger. But this is how Mary responds. My soul magnifies the Lord. What kind of trust of love is being displayed here in the darkest, scariest moment of her life, which goes on to be the most wonderful moment, one of the most wonderful moments in history, but at this moment, she's a scared 12, 13, 14-year-old girl, and this is her response. And look at some of the verbiage she uses of God. She talks about God being mighty, God's mercy, God's strength, God filling the hungry with good things, God providing. These are the kind of attributes you would handpick in someone in charge, right? Someone mighty enough, strong enough to do things, and merciful enough to want to do them for you, to want to fill the hungry with good things. So what are the areas in your life that you just don't want to let go of? that you're just clenching so tightly in your fist. You cannot let them go. You have to maintain control of them. What is the equivalent of stealing Christmas for you? What is that thing that you are just, I have to be here for? I have to hold this so tightly. Or on the other side, what, what are your gravy pants? What are, I, I, <laughs> I know, this makes me laugh. Okay, so what is that thing for you that is your gravy pants? The thing you have in your head mapped out so meticulously that God is going to come in and say, hey, that, that's, that's cute. But no, this is where I want you to go. What is that in your life right now? What would it look like to give control of that to God? What would that entail on an emotional, spiritual side? 
but also on a practical side. What would that entail? What would that look like? And then how might you feel after doing that? After giving up just a little bit of that control, a little bit of that, I'm in charge of my own life. What might that feel like to relinquish that to God? To relinquish that to the creator of heaven and earth, but also the babe that we're celebrating these next couple weeks, born in humbleness for us. What would that look like in your life? Because that's what Jesus wants. It's the entire reason Jesus came, was so that we wouldn't have to control, be in charge of everything, because we're bad at it. We saw how it ended up with us. We've read, you know, the beginning of the Bible. It didn't go well. And so Jesus is here to say, let me do it. Going back to that yoke analogy from a while ago, come on, let me bear this burden with you. Let me bear it for you. I'll carry you. You just have to let me. What does that look like? Join us as we pray.